Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to start this morning with an off-color story, so please bear with me. After years of pleading, this good old boy, who happened to be very wealthy, finally goes with her to church on Sunday morning. He was so moved by the preacher's sermon that on the way out, he stopped to shake the preacher's hand. He said, preacher, that was the best expletive sermon I did ever hear. The preacher said, oh, White, thank you, sir. But please, I'd appreciate it if you did not use profanity. The man said, I'm sorry, preacher, but I cannot help myself. It was such an expletive good sermon. The preacher said, sir, please, we can't have you talking that way in here. The man said, okay, preacher. I just wanted to, you to know that I thought it was such an expletive good sermon that I put 5,000 in that there collection plate. And the preacher said, no expletive way. <laughs> Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be looking at verse 33. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in the city of Corinth. The assembly in Corinth consisted of Jews and Greeks, and they were exposed to many influences in the surrounding world in two ways. The first was that many of these Christians originated from a heathen background, and we can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And second, they were continually exposed to their evil surrounding. We learned by the epistle that sexual immorality in the city of Corinth had influenced some of the assembly. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. In his letter, Paul dealt with some very important subjects. It's regretful that the congregation in Corinth made some mistakes, however, that presented an opportunity for the inspired apostle to address some important matters that we need to know about even today. So in 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, Paul wrote, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. That's the King James Version. Your version may use some different words. Notice that this verse contains a very strong warning to Christians. The warning is, be not deceived. If my memory is correct, Paul wrote three passages that begin with those same words. He dealt with some very strong matters that have to do with this warning, and Christians should pay very close attention to these. There are a number of warnings that are very similar given throughout the Bible. For example, in Luke 21 and 8, Jesus said, take heed, that you not be deceived. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Bible says, let no one deceive you by any means. There are numerous warnings given in the Bible that have to do with being deceived. We don't like to think about it, but we're all subject to deception. As we look at the passages that warn us against being deceived, we find there are at least two ways that we can be deceived. First, the Bible teaches that we can deceive ourselves. 
In that regard, 1 Corinthians 3 and 18 says, let no man deceive himself. The Bible warns us in a general way against being deceived, and specifically, the Bible teaches us not to deceive ourselves. Second, we can be deceived by other people. Ephesians 5 and 6 says, let no man deceive you with vain words. Not only does the Bible warn us against deceiving ourselves, the Bible warns us not to allow other people to deceive us. I almost don't think I need this next section, but I'm gonna read it anyway. To illustrate how easy it is for us to be deceived by other people, just consider the scams that we hear about every day these days. A few years ago, before this became quite so prevalent, I was speaking to a friend and she had received an email and responded to it, unfortunately, with all kinds of personal information. After she thought about it for a while and realized what she had done, she had to close down her checking account and close out several credit cards. She told me, I guess I'm just too trusting. And I thought, well, it's good to trust people, but you also have to do it with careful judgment. We realize that there are people out to get information and they will use just about any means of deception to accomplish that. It happens all around us and it is sad. It's really upsetting to hear of an elderly person being taken advantage of financially, but it happens all the time. It's sad that it happens, but it's very easy to be deceived. And the Bible warns us over and over again about deceiving ourselves as well as allowing other people to deceive us. In our lesson this morning, we want to examine the warning given in the verse we just read a few moments ago, 1 Corinthians 15 and 33. This verse teaches us not to be deceived by the influence of others. The Bible specifically tells us in this verse Evil communications or evil companionships corrupt good manners. The word ethos in the Greek variously is translated as manners, morals, or character. This is a very strong warning given to us and we need to reflect on it on a regular basis. So let's first look at the context of this verse. That's something we always need to do when we study scriptures. We always need to study them in their proper context. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, which is a long chapter, by the way, it's 58 verses, the Apostle Paul wrote at length about the resurrection. The main subject that is being dealt with here is the resurrection. Why do we think it is necessary or was necessary for Paul to write to this church about the resurrection? Remember, he had been there, I believe, a year and a half. And I feel certain that people, Paul, or Paul had taught these people the truth about the resurrection. That is a key part of the gospel. And it had to be one of Paul's main doctrines that he emphasized in his teaching. The fact that Jesus was resurrected and that the resurrection will occur when the Lord returns. I'm positive these people had been taught about it. However, look at verse 12. Here is a question that helps us understand why it was necessary for Paul to write to this assembly about the resurrection. 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? That question shows us that there were some people in the congregation saying there was no such thing as the resurrection, that there is no resurrection of the dead. These people, the ones teaching that ungodly doctrine, were the evil communications that are dealt with in verse 33. The warning was against the influence of evil communications because they corrupt good character. The communications under consideration in chapter 15 have to do with those people teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, let's illustrate the influence of that particular doctrine and what it can create. Next, Paul presents his line of reasoning. And as we consider this, we can't help but conclude if there is no resurrection, then Christianity serves no purpose. That's how important this matter is. Look with me starting in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, as some were teaching there, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. Continuing in verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That line of reasoning points out to us that if there is no resurrection, then Christ is still in the grave and we have absolutely no hope. Now verse 32. The end of this verse says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that in a nutshell is the philosophy that we're being followed by those who said there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then Christ was not raised. We have no hope. Those who died in Christ died in vain because they were looking forward to something that would happen when Christ comes back. If there is no resurrection, then let's just live for today, eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. Paul showed that the resurrection, which will take place when the Lord returns, is real. He began this chapter, chapter 15, by reminding them, starting in verse three, that he had delivered this information before, presenting proof that Jesus rose from the grave. He talked about the gospel message that he had preached in Corinth. The facts that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen. Jesus was seen by many credible witnesses after his resurrection, and Paul listed a number of them. He mentions the apostles. 
He mentioned several individuals. And he even said, last of all, he was seen of me also. Remember when Paul was traveling to Damascus, he met the Lord in Acts 22 and 14. Ananias tells Paul, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Paul had seen the Lord and he presented all that evidence at the beginning of the chapter before he dealt with the problem of those who were saying there was no resurrection. As Christians, we're looking forward to the resurrection and that should motivate us to serve the Lord faithfully. Look at the conclusion of this entire chapter, the very last verse, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We know that the Lord will return one day, and when he does, the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep will take place, and then the judgment for all. That should be a great motivation to serve God, to the very best of our ability, to be steadfast, to be immovable, and to always abound in the work of the Lord. The point here, we need to examine our associates very carefully because they will influence us. They will either influence us in a positive direction or they will influence us in a negative direction. Ephesians 5 and 11 tells us that we are to have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Is it possible to avoid contact completely with people who are not members of the Lord's body? Well, no, it's not. And the Bible acknowledges that. However, we have to be careful about our associates because they will influence us one way or another. I don't know about you, but I need all the positive influences I can get. I suspect many of you feel the same way. It's a whole lot easier to be good when you're around good people. And unfortunately, it's also easy to be not so good when you're around people who are not so good. Ever wonder why parents get a little frustrated when their child is taking up with that certain other child? As Christians, we want to have a positive influence on other people, but we have to understand that we also can be influenced. Well, in chapter 15, to whom is Paul writing? He's writing to the Christians in Corinth. And what was he warning them about? Be not deceived. It was possible for those people to be deceived by the influence of evil companionship. It's also possible for us to be deceived. We need to pay close attention to this very serious thing. Let's turn our attention now to an illustration of what we've been talking about out of the Old Testament. You probably heard this, and I have heard it many times, that we need to pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures because they often illustrate principles that are revealed in the New Testament. The Old Testament is a wealth of illustrations. What about this matter of evil influence? Let's look at Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. 
In Genesis 13, we read about the time when Abram and Lot parted company. Now, Lot was Abram's nephew. Abram's brother, Lot's father, had passed away, and it seems that Abram took Lot under his wing and for all practical purposes adopted him. Anyway, they were very close, and the Lord blessed both men, and they both had large flocks and herds of animals, so much so that the land could not support all of the animals, and that resulted in the herdsmen of both men striving with each other. Let's see how that was dealt with now. Genesis 13, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. It was necessary for these two men to part company. Abram, being the grand old gentleman that he was, told Lot, it's necessary for us to separate. The land simply cannot support all these animals. You go the direction you want to go, and I'll go the other way. Continuing now in verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes up and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. That was before, of course, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Lot made a decision. He chose the plain of Jordan because it was well watered. Yet there was something he overlooked. Verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Well, at this point in the narrative, we don't know what the sins were that were committed by the people in Sodom. At this point, we only know that they were exceedingly wicked and sinners before the Lord. That's the way the Bible describes the spiritual condition of the people living in Sodom. Lot was attracted to that plain because it was well watered. There would be plenty of water for his animals, and he seemingly overlooked the condition of the people there. We might wonder if Lot knew of Sodom or not. If he knew, could he possibly have thought that he and his family would not be influenced by their wickedness? We read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 of Genesis, and I'm not going to take the time to read the whole thing. I assume you're all familiar with it. But verse 1 tells us two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and they met Lot sitting in the gate. Lot asked these angels to come into his home. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Well, by this time, I suspect Lot knew what was taking place among the people there. The people gathered around Lot's home and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Lot tried to reason with the people. He said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. He knew what they wanted to do and that it was wicked. 
He offered to give them his two daughters, but the mob refused. Now, I suggest to you, as one commentator put it, that Lot was reprehensible in this heartless offer to sacrifice his daughters to the lust of the mob gathered at his door. His pleading the obligations of hospitality as an excuse for so doing was weak and sinful. What he was doing was trying to avoid one sin by committing another one. His righteousness must be understood in a relative sense only. The situation became so desperate that the angels struck the mob with blindness. And the Bible says that the mob wearied themselves to find the door. Even after being struck with blindness, they were still trying to get to the door and get inside. The angels learned what they needed to know, the wickedness of the people of Sodom. Earlier, God had agreed to Abram that if just five righteous souls could be found there, the city would be spared. Who escaped? Lot, his wife, and two of his daughters. That comes to a total of four. There were not five righteous souls in the entire city. We read about the destruction of Sodom and the cities of the plain. God rained fire and brimstone upon those cities. Lot, his wife, and two of their daughters escaped. The angels gave them some instructions and said, don't look back, get out of the city, get away. These four that we just mentioned, Lot, his wife, and the daughters apparently did not participate in those sins that were so prevalent in Sodom. However, it seems they were influenced to some extent by the wickedness of the people there. Now, Genesis 19 and 15, it says, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. But what did Lot do? He lingered. So the angels took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The influence of that place was strong, so strong that look what happens next. Lot was told, escape for your life, do not look behind you, or stay anywhere in the plain, escape to the mountains. And Lot replied, please no, my lords. He argued the mountains were too dangerous and begged to go to another city. He said, see now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Well, Lot was given permission to go there. And in verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord overthrew those cities and all the inhabitants of the plain save for Zor. Verse 26 says, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Her turning back to the destruction led to her being lost. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 31, speaking of the day when the Son of Man is to be revealed. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Then we find that Lot and his daughters left Zor and escaped to the mountains where they participated in some shameful activity. 
Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. Lot's two daughters got their father drunk, they had relations with him, and they bore children conceived with their father. Did Lot and his family actually participate in the wicked acts that were so prevalent in Sodom? No. But I think we can surely see that the evil influence from the wickedness in that city rubbed off on them to some extent. This tragic, pitiful episode stands as proof that Lot and his family had been in Sodom too long. They had indeed been delivered out of Sodom, but Sodom was still in them to a certain degree. And by the way, the children that they bore had nations of people named after them, the Moabites and the children of Ammon, and they were enemies of the Israelites. The things that happened to Lot and his family illustrate the truthfulness of the principle revealed in 1 Corinthians 15 and 33. Evil communications corrupt good character. Let's never be deceived into thinking otherwise. I'm sure you are as aware of this as I am. There has been for some time and even now at this very hour is a great effort being made to try to get people to believe all types of perverted behavior. We are surrounded by it. May the Lord help us to make wise decisions, especially when other people are involved. May God help us to choose our associates carefully. We will be influenced by the choices we make. Choose caution and be very careful. God help us to think about these things in a serious manner. Now we learn from the New Testament how we are to be saved to hear the word, believe in Jesus, confess our sins, confess our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and then be baptized for the remission of sins. If there is someone in the assembly today that needs to be buried with Christ in baptism, or if there is someone that has needs or desires for prayers of faithful Christians on their behalf, we encourage them to come forward while we stand and sing.